Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good evening, everyone, on this Monday Thursday. Monday Thursday is a time in our Holy Week journey that we pause for a few moments to reflect more deeply on Jesus' gift to us of Holy Communion, or what we often refer to as Eucharist. This blessed sacrament is, among other things, designed to unite us as one body and confirm God's grace in our life. But here's what might seem a little odd this evening. It might seem a bit strained in these times to reflect on the powerful images that communion conjures up, the church gathered, participation of a shared meal, the close proximity with one another that carries these biblical notions of intimacy, of unity, of shared life in Christ. It's not the stuff of social distancing. So I want to encourage us this evening to reflect on perhaps a positive side that can come out of our temporary displacement from one another. And it is this. As a general principle, our temporary losses are often rewarded by gaining an appreciation that can be lost through routine. That's one of the powers of the moments in which we live. In other words, we appreciate anew what we temporarily lose. So when we lose, even for a season, the images of the Lord's Supper that have become familiar to us, images that bolster the meaning of communion in our mind, it causes us to return to the deeper core truths that make the Lord's Supper not just a shared experience, not just a meal, but a sacramental treasure. So let's start with our Passover account, our Old Testament reading that we heard read earlier from Exodus 12. There are a few texts in the New Testament that are not better understood from their Old Testament context. This is especially true when discovering the riches of the sacrament. Tonight, our specific focus on Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. So this evening we want to take Exodus 12, our Old Testament reading, and we want to use it to shed light on Luke 22, our New Testament reading. In other words, we want to let Passover illuminate Eucharist. Our Old Testament reading from Exodus 12 described what? It described the instructions God gave to Moses and Aaron that would lead to the redemption of the people of Israel, their freedom from captivity. A redemption that would come not through stopping the plagues, but through leading them safely through the midst of what would be the last one in which every firstborn male was to die. And there's a helpful principle, I think, embedded in our Old Testament text tonight, and that is this, that God most often uses the circumstances of trials to deepen our faith rather than simply remove the trial. God's best work in our lives often takes place when we are living outside of our comfort zone. And that is where he's taking Israel in our Old Testament text. The instructions given to Moses and Aaron must have seemed rather odd, at least to the first hearers. I think sometimes the familiarity that we have with uh, the story of Passover, like others, uh, like other accounts in Scripture, sometimes can keep us from realizing just how unusual God.
God's display of grace actually was. And in this case, specifically how devoid it was of human effort other than simple obedience. And for those of you that have been walking with uh, God for a while, um, you know that God seldom works just by blessing our strategies. So think for a moment with me about God's instructions to Moses. It wasn't Moses, Aaron, teach these people how to fight. Teach them how to rise themselves up. Teach them how to gain freedom. Not that that wouldn't be a, a, an okay thing at some time, but rather what are the instructions? What are the instructions that he has given to Moses and Aaron to tell the people? Go find a helpless lamb. Choose a lamb, no defect, no broken bones, a male in its prime. And then the lamb was to be sacrificed. The blood of the lamb was then to be poured in a basin and the lamb's uh, blood was then spread on the doorpost. And God gets more specific. The application of the blood was to be made how? With hyssop branches. So obedience sometimes, as I read this text, is in the detail. It's one of the ways God keeps our heart in check, making sure it's his obedience that's being wrought and not our own efforts and not our own strategies. And then the last step in the completion of the Passover, as was read tonight, was to eat the flesh of the sacrificed lamb. Now, when you read Exodus 12, and I encourage you to go back maybe this week and reread it, we get to eavesdrop on God as teacher. The creator of the universe is teaching his people how to take a common outward visible sign, in this case, lamb's blood, and connect it with the promises of God so that they would come to understand the sign as a pledge of a deeper truth, an inward spiritual grace. This is Israel's catechesis or instruction from the Father as to how to take an outward visible sign and affix the promises of God so that it ties to something spiritually significant in order to illustrate his grace. And that's, in fact, the nature of sacraments in general. It's miraculously connecting the promises of God to common elements, inviting us to to see, to hear, to touch, all of our senses, to feel, to experience with our kids the assurance of God's promises over and over and over again. Because if we think about it for a moment, what is the power of lamb's blood spread on doorposts with a hyssop branch? Only this, Scripture reminds us, only as powerful as the promise which God has affixed to it. Do this, Israel, and I will show up and I will do this. People, trust me. Exodus 12 is very much like turning a light on Luke 12 and the other gospel writers who record the original Monday Thursday account. It is in Exodus 12 that we find Passover as a prequel to the Lord's Supper. So in other words, what is recorded in the upper room by Dr. Luke in Luke 22 is found in seed form in our Old Testament text in Exodus 12. So let's fast forward our time to Jesus' time and our New Testament text, which was found in Luke 
22. In the time of Jesus, the Jewish people are still celebrating the Passover in remembrance every year. The oppression, of course, is not from Pharaoh, but it's under uh, a new oppressor, Rome. And I think the emperor at that time was Tiberius. So for 1,500 years from Jesus' perspective, it is time. They have been celebrating, they've been remembering, they've been anticipating. And so as we come to this New Testament reading of Luke 22, it's in the context of celebrating the Passover that we find Jesus literally hours away from his death commemorating the Passover with his disciples. And I think it's hard for us today to imagine the anticipation in the air, the sights and the smells and the sounds of Jerusalem in the days leading up to Passover. Jerusalem at the time of Jesus had a population of about 40,000. And on Passover, two million pilgrims came in to Jerusalem. And lambs now, rather than being uh, sacrificed at home, now had to be sacrificed in the temple. And then the flesh was taken home, the meat was taken home for the Passover. Josephus, a historian, a contemporary of Jesus, who actually, most scholars don't think he was a believer, but he uh, talked about Jesus as a wise man, as a doer of startling deeds. He actually, in his history, um, kind of crunched the numbers with respect to the Passover at Jesus' time, and he came up with approximately 256,000 sacrificed lambs that were sacrificed in a very short period of time in the temple. Now, not to be um, too gruesome with this, but a lamb has about a gallon and a half of blood in it. And so if you look at the numbers from Josephus, there are over 400,000 gallons of blood flowing through the temple and the streets of Jerusalem. It's a picture that kind of captured the author of Hebrews. It's this relentless outpouring of sacrificial blood awaiting, anticipating this once for all sacrifice of the coming Messiah. And Jesus is among those at this time, who has gathered in Jerusalem to participate in the Passover. The table of Jesus um, would have looked similar to, for those of you who have done a Seder or have participated in one, um, it was very similar to uh, what we might experience. Um, but Jesus was at a meal. Unlike being with his family, he had gathered the 12 disciples, the church gathered, we might say. And to help our understanding of the Lord's Supper, I think it's helpful to understand the overall Passover meal. And it's actually really complex. I think uh, Jesse has downloaded some materials, but there, there are 15 parts if you do the whole thing. But I want to simplify it tonight for us in this way. The Passover was celebrated and organized basically around four cups of wine and then six hymns. The hymns were what they call the Halal Psalms, or Psalms 113 through 118. Those Psalms were read during the times the lambs were sacrificed, and then they were read uh, throughout the Passover meal. 
And the four cups, and I've got four cups of uh, wine, if you can see them here, um, they are referred to as the expressions of redemption. They represent the four promises of God that I will bring you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will be your God. So the first cup is what they call the cup of sanctification. It's, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And then this second cup is called the cup of deliverance. Some call it the cup of proclamation. And that is, I will rescue you from the bondage. And then the third cup, and we want to pay particular attention to third cup as we enter into the text of Luke 22. But that is the cup of redemption. It's, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And then finally, this last cup of wine, and this was mixed with water, just like we do in our uh, Eucharist service um, at Redeemer, it was called the cup of praise. And it's God saying, I will make you mine. I will take you as my people. So these four cups guided kind of an experiential retelling of the story of Exodus. The meal would follow the chronology of the four cups. I will bring you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will be your God. And so as Jesus gathers his disciples in the upper room, they would have reclined around a table and the first cup would have been poured, this cup of sanctification. And they reclined as a witness to the fact that no longer did they need to rush, no longer did they need to leave and be on the way as was in the Passover and the Exodus. And Jesus would have most likely uttered the prayer that is accompanied by the first cup. And that is, blessed are you, O Lord, our King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. And then the meal would be brought out, and that meal would have included what are the traditional elements in the modern Seder meal. Um, I have got, if you can see it, a, um, uh, a Seder plate here. And there are, um, over the years, there have been variations uh, to the Seder plate. But it usually includes a roasted egg. And this is the idea of the, the uh, cycle of life or the endurance. Also representing the, um, uh, the temple sacrifices at the time. So that's the reason they often roast uh, the egg. And then you have the horseradish or what are referred to as bitter herbs. Um, and those bitter herbs are designed to give witness to the idea that slavery was bitter. These were very, very difficult times. And so that was a way of illustrating that. And you can imagine in the, in the Jewish homes with kids sitting around, and uh, leaning in and listening to the recounting, even though it might have been hundreds of years in the past. And then often there would be some sort of granary. It used to be that they took uh, hyssop branches and dipped it in blood. Um, but later, um, the Seder meals um, are parsley that would be dipped in uh, salted water. And that would be representative of the tears uh, that were shed. And then we have this element, um, which is horoset, and horoset's just a kind of apple-raisin mixture, and uh, that was designed to remind 
the people of God after the original Passover of the mortar that was used to make bricks. Um, and in fact, this was used as an appetizer in the early uh, Old Testament. And um, scholars think that this is the morsel uh, that Jesus may have dipped into as an appetizer and handed to Judas in order to uh, indicate which one of the disciples would betray him. So after this first cup and after the meal uh, is brought out, there would be a second cup that is poured and that's the cup again of deliverance or a proclamation. And this is when traditionally the youngest child would ask, Father, why is this night different from all the other nights? And then an explanation would take place and the father or the host would walk the family through the Passover events. The father would explain so that these past experiences of Exodus and its present meaning were, were merged. And then they would sing uh, the first two hymns, Psalm 113 and Psalm uh, 114, and most would know these by memory. So after that, um, there would be a third cup that would be poured, but not drank yet. It would be mixed with water. And that's this cup of redemption that it's referred to. And the host would explain and bless the bread and then explain the purpose behind eating the flesh of the sacrificed lamb at the table. And then they would eat. And it's in this third cup that we see Jesus transition us into the new covenant. Instead of pairing the unleavened bread with a sacrificial lamb, he indicates and pairs it with the lamb, referring to himself. It was like echoing the words of John the Baptist when he introduced Jesus, if you remember, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was like another I am he moment in scripture, even though the disciples had a lot of catching up to do to understand probably in retrospect what was really taking place. And then the bread would be blessed. The traditional blessing of the bread would have been, blessed are you, Lord, who brings forth bread from the earth. And what were the words that we heard Jesus say in Luke 22, and other gospel writers record it, he said, this is my body, which is given for you. It had to be a startling uh, turn of events for these disciples. So then this third cup, um, they would uh, eat um, and then after that, this cup of blessing would be taken. It's called Baruch. And this third cup is the cup that Jesus used to institute the first Eucharist. We know this from a number of sources, including the New Testament and our gospel reading. Um, and he gives it to them, and he miraculously, think back to Exodus 12, now he miraculously connects the promise of his real presence with these common elements of bread and why? He's affixing his promise of forgiveness of sins, like blood on a doorpost. God promised a fix to common elements, and therein lies the power 
and the mystery of Eucharist. One author put it this way, out of the darkness of my life so much frustrated, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth, the blessed sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves upon earth. That was written by J.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. It's just an amazing statement to me. He's describing what is seemingly common, and he's recasting it in language suited only for the extraordinary. It's this place between humanly knowing the answer and simply falling back in trust on a sovereign and loving God. And that's why after the words of institution in our liturgy you hear, we underscore the notion of mystery with these words. Therefore we proclaim, what about the faith? Therefore we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That is our hope, the risen Christ. And then in the meal, there would be a fourth cup which is referred to as the cup of praise. And the Passover Seder meal would be concluded with this cup, and it was drank in celebration of the complete redemption having been secured after eating the flesh of the sacrificed lamb. But what is Jesus doing in our New Testament text in Luke 22? He's instituting a new covenant. And so when we look through the Gospels, we actually see no evidence that Jesus partook of the fourth cup during the Passover meal. Most scholars believe that Jesus didn't finish the Passover meal because he's refashioning the old covenant meal with a new. So the sacrifice is no longer an historical prototype, the unblemished lamb, but it's who? It's Jesus, the lamb to be slain, a once-for-all sacrifice. This is what the Hebrew of writers, uh, the Hebrew, uh, the writer of Hebrews, excuse me, reflected on. It was a massive shift when he writes in Hebrews 10. Listen to this in light of our Old and New Testament text and gospel. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all a one-time single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Some scholars think that this fourth cup is what Jesus is referring to in the garden when he prays three times what? If it's possible, let this cup, this conclusion that I must give my life in order to drink of, let this pass from me, if it be your will. So what about the fourth cup? The Gospel of Matthew tells us, and Luke 22 hints at it as well, that after instituting the Lord's Supper with the third cup, Jesus said, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day 
when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And again, scholars believe, and I love the thought, although we don't have complete assurance, that this, in fact, may be the marriage feast of the Lamb when the Passover that Jesus, where he instituted Eucharist, would be completed as we, the church, gather in the new heaven. So as we pause and reflect tonight, these two texts that we had, the Old Testament from Exodus 12 and Luke 22, in tandem, offer us an account of the extraordinary actions of God in this sacrament. What kind of creator does this? What kind of God steps into his created world with an offer of his most intimate presence to his created people? People who wonder, people who rebel, people who often insist on their own way, people like us. This is our God. It's his history. And I want to remind you tonight that this is our Heavenly Father's posture with us this evening in these times. And our Heavenly Father loves to remind us. And perhaps that is why the most often repeated promise of Scripture is, I am with you. It's the story of God throughout redemptive history. He reminded Israel through his presence, through the tabernacle, through the Ark of the Covenant, through manna and the temple. If you remember, he guided them, reminding of his presence through the pillar of cloud by day and another fire at night. All of it to say again and again and again, I am with you in the midst of these circumstances. And so it is with us. From our scripture on this Monday, Thursday evening, comes the invitation to you and me to abide in these moments in communion with the living God, assured that he is with us, inviting us to experience again through the gift of Holy Communion, the deepest level of communication, that which is wordless, that which is beyond speech. It's not an escape from the world but rather into the reality of the world from God's perspective. So that in the end of time, when sin is a distant memory and forgiveness is obsolete, it will be sung as scripture has told us, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. I pray that this would be true in your life for Jesus' sake. Amen.